Hi, this is Cliff Griego for the Picture Poem Circle Square podcast. This is the concert mix for May Day 2015. Thanks for tuning in. This time we have uh, 11 different tracks, I believe. We start out with a poem written for Swiss friends Christian and Rolf called Dedication. It's the prelude to my collection Rilke in the Wallawas. Uh, the second piece is a much longer narrative poem. It's rather uh, surreal in character, and I'm working on it again at present because it's going to be turned into a vocal piece. In the background, you'll hear both a, a flowing snow melt uh, small creek together with a recording made in uh, March, still in the dead of alpine winter, of uh, two uh, coyotes singing in the middle of the night. Uh, one little footnote is uh, they have a kind of counter singing with themselves using the acoustics of a partial old-growth dug fir in a ponderosa pine forest. So they work with the echo. The echo can be with snow on the ground. If they're singing in the um, right uh, direction, as long as uh, four seconds. So it's really something, <laughs> uh, it's really something to behold. Of course, there uh, are no lights around that you have to ski in. It's a very um, pristine environment, and then suddenly to be awoke in the middle of the night by two coyotes uh, communicating in that way is quite a quite an experience. The third piece is a set of uh, miniatures, control, oligarchy, and double bind, and then we're back to uh, poetry, hamadryad. Um, that's an ancient uh, uh, Greek uh, term for the spirit who was thought to live uh, with a tree. You can see there's kind of a tree theme going on for the May Day podcast. It was also that the spirit was thought to die with the death of the tree. So it's a meditation on that. Fifth up is a translation from the Dutch, from, it's about a 50-year-old uh, uh, poem, for a tree in the Fondel Park. As some of you might know, the Fondel Park is in the center of Amsterdam. One interesting footnote is that when the land by uh, Sir Fondel, that was a real person, was dedicated to the city, he insisted that the uh, park uh, never close. And so to this day, it's open in the dead of night. It's a wonderful park. Many, many beautiful deciduous trees there. Sixth up is the, um, it's a sharp contrast uh, from the Dutch. And it throws you right out in the middle of the wilderness. And it's one of my um, commentaries on... Um, forest and BLM uh, ground. So for our European friends, it might be a little bit harder to follow. But I'm actually out there on skis uh, talking about what I'm seeing.
April, I believe it is, a year or two ago, just all of the uh, things that you can notice as the snow is melting, evidence even at that time of year of uh, overgrazing and mismanagement of the commons. The sixth piece is really the center, or I should say the seventh piece, is uh, a piece called the Sacred Snake. That's for the Snake River country. It's a meditation. It's read, by the way, in uh, synth uh, voice. Some people ask me why I prefer in some longer pieces to do that. Well, there are many reasons. Uh, one is, for example, it's a way of objectifying a text in a very neutral kind of voice. And for me, that's interesting because it's almost as if someone else composed it. So it creates a kind of distance in the same way that you look down on a valley from a great height. And it's, uh, I find that uh, um, very um, interesting. It's very revealing. And then there's another one, too. It's not only the neutral quality of the voice, that it's tresec uh, without emotion, which I prefer when they're very contentious pieces. Whenever you're talking about dams out in the Pacific Northwest, it's by definition uh, contentious, for better or worse. That can encourage dialogue in a way that if I read it myself, might not happen. So it's a way of experimenting. The third point is that for international audiences, it's sometimes actually easier to understand a computer speak than to hear a European or American accent. Number eight is uh, on the necessity of poetry. That's from the fireweed poems, and there are five little miniatures on the meaning and significance of poetry. Number nine is a, uh, from the hundred miniatures. It's the one, um, the hundred miniatures with uh, one idea, one image, one new way of looking with all the black and white photography that's featured quite prominently on the Picture Poems uh, website. It's one of the uh, lead-off miniatures. We shape the music and then the music shapes us. That's, of course, a riff on my oft-repeated phrase, we shape the world and the world shapes us. So it's like a mutual arising. It's not first in time. Uh, They happen simultaneously, one at a time and all at once, if you can kind of sense what I'm saying, that if we want to understand the dehumanization, in my view, the dehumanization in denaturalization of the cultural landscape, that's a key thing to look at. We not only make these things and put them out there, but they come round to shape uh, uh, awareness, thinking, and behavior. Generally, we're not uh, cognizant of that. One example is with cars. Another one is with... uh, Uh, computers. So we shape the music. So it's a meditation on we not only compose music or produce music, but that comes around and shapes our perception of music. And uh, I think what is called for 
in my own view, is a new awareness of that very movement. Number 10 is, uh, for the Ryuka fans, a new translation of a very beautiful uncollected piece uh, called Springs, Quallen, in both uh, English and German. It's a very beautiful short piece. And then as a kind of a special feature coda, um, the 11th track is a long sound poem called The Bell. It's one of my favorite pieces. And there are eight high country uh, in a surreal three-dimensional, I guess you could say electronic soundscape, except uh, the sounds are all real percussion, and they're all played one layer or one track at a time uh, by hand. So it's anything but a, a computer kind of uh, sound. The bell. Well, that's it for now. That's the uh, constant mix for this uh, May podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm heading out on an extended uh, fieldwork uh, track tomorrow doing uh, white bark pine photography. So I'm not quite sure if there's going to be a summer solstice podcast. At least if there is, it's going to be coming out a little bit late like this one. So thanks for tuning in, and until the next time, ciao for now. This is Cliff, signing off for Picture Poems in Circle Square. Dedication for Rolf and Christian. To learn a poem in but one language, especially if the language is not your own, is like climbing a mountain alone by its most direct and arduous route. To learn a great poem in two or more languages, is to climb the same mountain, but now from many different sides, perhaps together with friends. Then we may come to see that the summit is the place where all the many directions which we once perceived as so different are clearly one and that the mountain itself, no matter how many times we climb it, remains forever pristine and pure, forever beyond our understanding. This, then, is the place where the poem has brought us, the place where all language ends.
Omphalos. They released two golden eagles from the far corners of the earth and knew that where they would come together and touch wings, there they would find the center of their world. Sometime after the performance is over, lean your ear carefully against the wall of the concert hall and let it speak to you. It is possible that the wood holds within itself the countless subtle movements of all past performances, all sounding together at once as silent echoes within echoes within echoes. Perhaps it is this resonance of the past that reaches out to touch and inform the present moment. Space. The silence of the blank page from which the sound of words emerges. Space. The violin on the table, not yet tuned, but we already sense the almost manifest shape of all past and future concerti. A child might touch it, and hear the wind moving through the crowns of trees in a distant forest. Forest, wood, space. The master carpenter travels with his two young apprentices from village to village. They go on foot and are welcomed everywhere. With luck, they will help you build your home. It will last a thousand years. Wood, forest, space. But where shall we place it? The mark of the Omphalos. We see it even at a great distance, erect, standing straight up into the air, artifact of a proud geometry. What was here before this city was built? Does it always begin with the placement of but a single stone? Terra Omnis terra, in exaltatione terra. Surely the river remembers, and perhaps the older solitary trees, placed and planted by others long ago, ask the same question. You see it in the way their powerful branches weave themselves into the surrounding air and protect it and offer a sanctuary. Let us go then together, slowly, hesitantly, from tree to tree, you and I, from tree to tree, crossing swiftly fences and wires, in wide, noisy, dangerous roads. Surreal city, we pause and listen to the sound. From a distance, the mark of the Omphalos, artifacts of ruler, triangle, and square, nets grids thrust out upon the world, bold gestures cut in stone, in exaltatione omnis terra, unreal city, unreal, space, the orchestra of strings stops to tune and tune again, Sensing the hushed sway of trunks 
in a distant forest space where should we place our man of stones to mark where others have gone before us and who have disappeared in this city mark of the omphalos not a monument no supernaturally proportioned horse or artist or military man but a dream surreal city of many who rose to speak as one of freedom and with great urgency and at that moment the sound of all creation passed through their voice unreal city long before the ancients knew that images of gods could never be brought down to earth omnis terra exalted we stand on a bridge above a highway all highways together listening to that sound one breath of the bow in the symphony sounds out into voices of pure silver and glass et in secula seculorum but a dream city but a dream On the masculine energy of control. Once the balance of masculine and feminine principles is lost, mere competition between the genders will replace complementarity. There's something about the decidedly masculine energy of control that loves the crisp, clear, straight lines of a laser or bullet's trajectory. Think of it. Straight walls, straight pipes, straight roads, straight dams. Pity the time when we no longer cry out that life is not only a matter of the shortest, most efficient route between points A and B, but that there is more, and that life is from another perspective, the eternally feminine, essentially round. Pity the time when time itself is seen not just as an arrow flying fast and furious to its goal, but also a mysterious rhythmic pulse of wheels turning within wheels which comes round with the miracle of each new birth. Pity the time when we acquiesce in our silence and become at once both imitator and victim of this powerful, but oh so one-sided, 
straight-line universe of men in love with the illusion of mechanical control. On holigarchy, the order of the whole, holigarchy is the mutual cogeneration of whole and parts. With holigarchy, both whole and parts share in a kind of co-relative equal importance in the distribution of generative intelligence. This is, of course, in marked contrast to the idea of hierarchy or how we normally conceive of organizational structure as an ascending ladder of importance or rank. Higher is more, lower less. Higher or lower of X of whatever, power, control, information, money, or all of these. Hierarchy we see as a kind of directional flow of order and importance from the top to the bottom, as in the classic military or corporate structure, or as a somewhat weaker and less common alternative, there is also the more grassroots interpretation of the flow of order and hierarchy from the bottom up. In contrast, what is unique about what I'm calling oligarchy is the generative flow of order both from the bottom up and the top down. The model or paradigm I always like to keep in mind that is actually here is that of acoustic harmonic sound. Briefly, with a harmonic series, the ground tone or fundamental generates the higher harmonics or overtones, while at the same time, these harmonics or overtones come round by means of difference tones to reinforce or when the fundamental is, for example, for whatever reason absent, actually regenerate a new ground tone. Actually regenerate a new ground tone. Within the classical music tradition, this regeneration principle was used in the Baroque era, especially in the Italy of Stradivari and Vivaldi, to great effect. And then nearly two centuries later, once again by the French-American composer Edgar Varese, but now to create totally unique, vibrantly alive sound complexes. My conjecture, again here very briefly, is that this oligarchic principle of mutual cogeneration of part and whole may be very much more common in the natural world than we at present realize.
Memory is spatial. We shape the world, and the world shapes us. Arrange the objects you use every day in a queer spatial array, and you'll never have to think of where to find them. The hand simply moves to the left or to the right and picks up your book and writing pen without giving it a second thought. Indeed, this is perhaps one of the more important meanings of second nature. The objects and tools and artifacts we work with become easily and naturally extensions of ourselves. This should be a guiding principle of digital design. Finding things should never be self-consciously visual, but rather unconsciously spatial. We shouldn't have to think about the tools that help us think. Watercourse Way We shape the world, and the world shapes us. Balance and art follows the natural movements of water and weather. Fast mountain streams give way to the slow, supple curves of lowland rivers. In the broad expanses of the sea, dark, cold rains are followed by bright skies and the happy warmth of the sun. Balance is never either or but rather the course which runs between extremes, the culture which has lost direct resonance with these movements of the symphony of life will also necessarily lose its sense of balance and measure in its art. Runaway Deceptions A runaway deception is a false or negative idea which is put into a positive feedback loop, much like a microphone feeding back on itself and wildly amplifying its own sound. Runaway deceptions as ideas tend to be self-reinforcing. Once you have the idea that, for instance, all Arabs are terrorists, just the earthy, guttural sound of their language, which few in the West feel any sympathy for, let alone speak fluently or understand, is enough to trigger fear and hate and violence. And when we approach the world with such fear and hate and violence, the world will most likely answer us in kind thereby wrapping round itself and giving still more energy to the deception. In this way, runaway deceptions also tend to be self-destructive. In their extreme fundamentalist form, the survival of the false idea of the deception itself, that it should prevail, may very well become more important than one's own survival. Runaway deception, indeed.
our troubled relationship with the earth. God wrote the music, but the devil conducts. Don't forget, everyone must play in the symphony of life. The contract says forever. So we push our buttons and hit our drums and stroke our strings all at the devil's command. Remember, everyone must play. The contract says forever. He reminds us, poor child, there's no way in hell you can live without the results. And we believe him. from an American triptych. Emma Dryad. It begins. A map, a line, a road is built. One tree falls, a cascade follows, slopes, left naked in the wind. Look alike seedlings in row after row, a handful of pennies for fifty tons lost. This necessary asymmetry, a saw steady journey into the tree's distant past, a year of growth cut away in a second or two. A man looks that moment of hesitation as the great fall begins. First silent, a holding of the breath, then the air splitting on either side, two huge waves, the swell, the crash. Even the hand holding the saw is brought down to earth. Such a dilemma, this need of wood, this need of trees. But need we be the one who cuts the weave? Single trees are not the forest, the separate sounds make no great passion. Where does the music go? Have you not heard the tree spirit sing through the wood of the oboe, the violin? These gifts of the forest, which are made to last. But I play my song on a broken violin. The crass and scratchy sound which suffering makes I am the naked slope cut clear of trees, torn open with a muddy road. 
But how can I resist the saw when the saw is me? I am a dryad, from the Greek, literally means the spirit which lives together with the tree. The spirit was thought to die with the death of the tree. This poem might also be called the broken violin, and it might be dedicated to the great Austrian naturalist, Victor Schauberger, who, already some 80 years ago, warned of the scarcity of spruce timber in the mountain forests of the Alps of sufficient stature and quality for use in the sounding boards of new string instruments. For a tree in the Vondelpark, aan een boom in het Vondelpark. Een gedicht van Im Vassalis, a poem by Im Vassalis, read and translated by Kurt Krieger. This poem was composed about 50 years ago. I'll do it first in English, then in Dutch, and then in English again. The Vondelpark is a wonderful park with many old beautiful trees right in the heart, the center of Amsterdam. A tree was cut down with long locks of green. It sighed with a swish like a child as it fell, still full of summer wind. I've seen the wagon that carried it away, oh, as a young man, as Hector in his chariot, with trailing hair and the smell of youth streaming out of his beautiful wounds. The young head still unscathed, the proud buttocks still undefeated. And a boom in the Vondelpark is a boom gefeld with lange groene locken. He zucht hier reizend als een kind terwijl hij viel nog vol van zomerwind. Ik heb de kar gezien die hem heeft weggetrokken. Oh, als een jonge man, als Hector aan de zegenwagen, met slepend haar en met de geur van jeugd stromend en zijn schone wonden, het jonge hoofd nog ongeschonden, de trotste romp nog onverslagen. For a tree in the Vandalpark. A tree was cut down with long locks of green. It sighed with a swish like a child as it fell, still full of summer wind. I have seen the wagon that carried it away, oh, as a young man, as Hector in his chariot, with trailing hair and the smell of youth streaming out of his beautiful wounds. The young head still unscathed, the proud buttocks still undefeated. Hi, this is Cliff Kriegel again for Picture Poems. I'm out here doing flow form uh, living water photo work along a small stream at about 1500 meters. And it's about April the 11th, Thursday, I think. And uh, I'm just about ready to pack out down to the office to do some 
uh, digital darkroom work. But I just thought I would remark on this one photo. If uh, this is a transition time of year, um, this morning it was about min minus uh, 10 degrees Celsius, so it's still pretty cold up here, and it's uh, good frozen snow. But as you see in the photograph, it's opening up. So it's about uh, where I'm standing right now is about 50-50, 50 snow, 50 open frozen ground. But it's a heartbreaking transition, but only if you know how to read the uh, signs or the meaning of the image. And there's one contradiction that's very strident uh, that wouldn't first meet the eye. So just let me say a word about it. Uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest, there's a tradition of, with all these antiquated, in my view, uh, designations of the land from National Forest to Bureau of Land Management and whatnot, of uh, different grades of use of the land. And one of the uh, contradictions, one of the problems, with wa without wanting to attack anyone here, but it is just a fact, that uh, uh, cow-calf pairs are driven up into the BLM as soon as the there's enough, as uh, the ranchers would say, green uh, uh, to sustain them. So it's quite early in the season. And, well, in contrast to the tradition of the Alps, which is a very much older one and very different, which also has any number of problems and contradictions, the main problem is that the cows are a riparian animal and they want to congregate in flat, shady spaces with water. Full stop. And so if there are flat, shady spaces with water in the hot summers, it's going to get very hot up here during the summertime and very dry. Uh, well, they just sit and poop and piss and tear up everything near uh, the riparian, the streamside habitats, which of course are not only the most important but also the most sensitive. So what you see here in the photograph is the result of just physical damage. That's the most obvious things, that the hooves just tear up everything. And then all the uh, stream water contamination, uh, with the feces getting into the water and everything, uh, which is, you know, if you add that up, even if you were to take down the dams, if you continue the current grazing pra practices, the water would still be so contaminated and the riparian still so uh, disrupted that the salmon, in my view, wouldn't be able to come back. Uh, but anyway, not with uh, wanting to attack anyone. I have lots of friends that are ranchers and understand, uh, especially the small family operations, as they're called, they're just trying to make a good, honest living like everybody up here. And uh, the whole problem, in my view, is scale. In the Alps, um, the farmers will get together and discuss how many animals can they take up there. And they're about an order of magnitude or two less than what they'll do here. Instead of having, like in the old days, they would have bands of sheep of 1,200 driven up here following the snow melt. 
And in the Alps, the maximum size of a band that I've ever seen is 120. And not only that, but there's always, at least in the past, a shepherd that uh, would stay with them uh, to watch out for predators, to watch out that they're not, you know, getting into problems. But here they're just driven up and left and maybe checked, uh, you know, at most once a week. But in my view, the people who own the uh, cattle have no idea of what's going on up here. No idea. The only thing they know is if there's feed and water and if there's a predator problem, that sort of thing. Just very, very, very uh, sketchy outline of what's actually happening. But anyway, it's a problem like many problems in our relationship with the living land. It's a problem of scale and limit and number. It's not complicated. Uh, but there is a kind of false tradition in my view that a very, very few people profit uh, by this BLM land, which is our land, right? And profit inappropriately with uh, uh, very negative uh, consequences. So, so it should at least be continuously questioned until it's brought into some sort of harmonious relationship. And that's not to attack individuals. It has nothing to do with individuals. It has nothing to do with traditions. But it has everything to do with facts and contradictions. So the dialogue needs to uh, be sustained in a serious way to address the problem. Well, that's all I wanted to say about this image. This is Cliff signing off again. Till next time. Ciao for now. Snake River Country, the sacred in the water course way. What strikes me most about the admittedly small part of the Snake River watershed I have actually seen is the present disharmony between the immensity of spirit manifest in the seemingly endless cascade of canyons, waterfalls and cliffs, and the chilling meanness of spirit evidenced by what man in his short-sighted folly has wrought upon the lifeblood of one of the world's great rivers. The contradiction is strident beyond all imagination. To me. It is like the mindless rounding up of all the precious instruments of a Vivaldi or Mozart symphony of strings and smashing them. Smashing them, yes. Trashing all the violins, the violas, the cellos, the basses, for the wood to burn as fuel. There is light, yes. Yes, there is warmth. But at what cost? At what loss? The large-scale hydroelectric dams of the 20th century appear to me as relics of the era that brought us World War II. Like the German Wehrmacht's bunkers still scattered about the sandy, peaceful North Sea beaches of Holland I walked in my youth. Structures that only with great difficulty can be removed. 
They are clear signs of man's futile attempts to order his universe through the extremes of violent division and brute force control. From north to south, this week's photos cover the area above, outlined roughly by the three Snake River dams, Hell's Canyon, Oxbow and Brownlee. But the mistakes of the past, when we understand them, become the cheerful challenges of restoration that thrill any young person's heart. No, not man the destroyer of habitats, but man the creator. For me, the new natural energy path is the water course way, a way which adapts itself to, and moves with and not against the grain of what is, like a skilled woodworker shapes the light sounding board of spruce, or carves a violin strong backside of solid maple. Fifty years ago, when many of these insanely megalithic dams were built, a worldwide web of interlinked computing machines was mere fantasy. Now, it is reality. We need now a parallel, equally sophisticated, complementary revolution in natural energy technologies. There is in my view but one barrier to this. It is a barrier which is at present tragically and arbitrarily limiting and corrupting our collective creative capacity just as we need it most. This barrier or block is a kind of inner or psychological dam which is as powerful, if not more so, as the reinforced concrete of the Hell's Canyon Dam just a few river miles downstream from the camp at which I write down these thoughts. In a word, we are in a self-destructive manner holding on to the mistakes of the past. And we do this because we see them as our only safe and sure guarantee of future security. Outwardly, this block is manifested in the fact that democratic governments everywhere, but most especially in the United States, have evidently become mere subsidiaries of vast concentrations of old energy oil wealth. And these deep, vested, special interests are not about to give up the structures which are in place to pump every last dollar out of hydrocarbons until the resource is totally exhausted. If you don't think ExxonMobil will continue on its present policy of viciously enslaving the earth until it ends up extracting oil from the bones of the dead, then, don't take my word for it, it's time you turn off your television and go on a cross-country walk and find out for yourself. The way to heal this block is simple. It's a twofold approach. One, a return to government, for the people, by the people, of the people by extirpating all money from politics. Not one dollar, one vote, but one person, one vote. Two, don't fight, demonstrate the alternative. In my view, the best defense of nature is not to attack what we perceive as our opponents, but to actually show or make physically manifest the better way. So as we walk the extra mile and turn the other cheek, we conserve enough creative energy to generate thousands of new jobs with the design and deployment of high-tech windmills, and begin putting ever more sophisticated solar panels on every roof. There are already shining beacons of inspiration on the not-that-distant horizon. Denmark already wins 15% of its total energy consumption with wind, and Germany is close behind. And most importantly, they have both in a simple direct way made the complete conversion to renewables a matter of law. 
see Germans e.g. legislation, North Americans, young and old, should go there to learn from them. And young Danes and Germans should start walking the world and biking through the U.S. to spread the good news. But the reader may ask, isn't hydropower clean energy? No it is not clean. At least, not at the immensity of scale demonstrated in the Great Columbia Snake River Basin. The size of these projects is dwarfed only by the ignorance evidenced in the horrendous havoc they have in but a single generation wrecked upon the entire hydrologic cycle. In my view, it is not just salmon that are at stake here. That would be catastrophe enough in itself. But what is worse is that the destruction of the natural water cycle is most certainly a major factor in the evident permanent drying out and climate chaos manifest in the Intermountain Northwest. And, as should be added with great emphasis, in the European Alps as well. The ways of water are subtle and mysterious indeed. Some would say sacred. But we need to begin the era not of habitat destruction, but of habitat restoration and creation, not just by taking down the dams, but by first and foremost taking down the inner dams, which block a fundamental change of heart. What we need is an esprit nouveau, or new spirit, one which comes to order and harmony and intelligence, by, step by step, removing the wasteful psychological blocks caused by patently outmoded ways of perception. There is, in closing here, a certain pressing urgency. For we can only continue down our present path of, to return to our first image, smashing violence, for so long. At a certain point, there will be no one left to teach the young how to build new and better instruments or how to work together to achieve a more complete and divine harmony of ensemble. And as the noise of political bickering and obfuscation, and deliberate media whitewashing and attack fills the air, the living sound of wild, rushing water shall pass silently and all but unnoticed into the eternal nowhere of extinction. 3.21.2008 Eagle Bar on the Muted Snake And the Necessity of Poetry 1. Walking from spring to spring, one tires quickly of all the intellectual bush-beating, telling me I'm not thirsty when I'm thirsty. 2. Let's be simple. A house without a hearth is a home 
without a center. After somebody lets the fire go out, they always like to tell you that it wasn't important. Three, have you ever noticed that bird calls are often answered by silences of equal duration? Who is to say which one, the sound or the silence, is more important? Four, we are born naked, we make love naked, and we die naked. Though not strictly necessary, doing poetry naked seems to work just fine. Five, once the commons are fenced in and sold, on that very ground will argue incessantly about the necessity of poetry. We shape the music, and then the music shapes us. Music is movement. Music is a movement of relationship. Music is a movement of relationship that we sense, not just here, but since. Music is a movement of relationship that we sense somatically, by means of the instrument of our whole mind-body. What shapes sensing is formative metaphor, but which metaphor shall shape our experience? Domination, force, conflict, aggression? Or shall it instead be the imagery of friendship, of dialogue, contemplation, the fierce energy of outrage, the empathy of shared grief, the wonder of distant stars. It is up to us. We shape the music, and then the music shapes us. Four miniatures on form. One, a melody or phrase in a poem is not built up of parts like a wall is built of bricks. Fold into fold, the parts reflect and refer to the whole, while the whole in turn gives structure and order to the parts. It is this quality of the movement of the whole that is primary. Vitally important is that this movement can only partially be seen or studied on the printed score or page. Two, 
form, whether that of a musical composition or a poem, a ribbon of water or a flower, emerges out of movement. It is the outward envelope of the rhythmic pulsive change. 3. Complicatedness is difficulty which serves no purpose and is therefore without reason or meaning. It is difficulty which is unnecessary. Nothing else defeats the mind more quickly than having to deal on a day-to-day -day basis with a necessary difficulty which goes unresolved. In any traditionally hierarchical social structure, whether it be a school, an army, a symphony orchestra, or a large corporation, this is the single most important factor which frustrates the intelligence or creativity of the individual. Remarkably, in this sense, complicatedness in nature does not exist. Why? Because it wastes energy and therefore contradicts nature's economy of the watercourse way. 4. Just as water flows around all obstacles, intelligence naturally moves to resolve all unnecessary difficulties. Poor design imposes arbitrary blocks or limits to the freedom of this flow. On relationship, some people make us smart, others make us dumb. Some people make us happy, others make us sad. If dialogue and compassion form two sides of the triangle of friendship, then encouragement or the mutual generation of the creative energy that makes real change and discovery possible might be the third. This is how the world becomes a better place, two people at a time. Springs, a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke, read and translated by Cliff Kriegel. Springs, springs, they rise to the surface almost too quickly. What wells forth out of the ground, hallowed and bright, from the crystal, let the shimmering light sweep out so that it may walk with us to the marked stones of the meadow. Yet for us, 
What is our reply to such gestures? Oh, how are we to divide water and earth? Quellen, sie munden herauf, beinahe zu eilig. Was treibt aus Gründe herauf, heiter und heilig? Lässt dort im Edelstein Glanz sich breiten, um unsern Wiesenrein schlicht zu begleiten? Wir was erwidern wir solcher Gebärde? Ach, wie zergliedern wir Wasser und Erde? One morning, the mountain farmer goes out to milk his goats and never comes back. A quiet stream leaps from the edge of a high granite cliff and disappears into the late summer air. Sitting in an alpine meadow, more flowers than grass, the sound of delicate bells rings out wave after wave from the meadow which sleeps in rocks. First fire. Burning candle, match lit, a solitary flame passed on to a handful of dry pine. Is there really this or that fire? Or is there just fire, a source ever present? Smell of smoke, pinched eyes, ears cracked open as the primal flame bursts into awareness. Deep within, the body moves to the music sung, to the sun god brought down to earth. 
I pick up the axe and in a split second cleave the trees slowly grown past timeline back into the present. With metal sound and I feel the awe of peaking man flow through me. It is listening to these sounds that keeps the sacred fire alive. Love letter. I wrote on the outside. Have seen many Vanessas, all above treeline, all heading south. One wonders, from Dutch burning nettle to the sweet heel of the Italian boot, how do they find their way? Coffee finished, the waitress smiled as I placed the sugar packet with its colorful butterfly into the gray envelope and sealed it carefully with a kiss. New clothes, all these bright colored clothes, the noise of city streets shouting, here I am, get out of the way. How much more beautiful to disappear into the rich hues of an October day. Simple garments, subtle weaves, threads, the color of solitude. Awareness always be so slow in coming. I've learned to sense each rock, each change in the lay of the land before I cut. But my scythe, so hopelessly full of gouges and cracks, its tip no longer whole.
mountain, chapel, cemetery, and tree. A snow-covered mountain, a chapel made of stones. A cemetery that holds the light and the darkness that entwines them both. A shadow falls from a linden tree, its crest now broken after so many years. Planted with such care, two seedlings grow and will take its place. As two young men walk swiftly by, the mountain's face begins to glow. Will their roots too reach deep water? Will they too embrace the light? The bell, the point at the center of the cross, where wet and cold meet warm and dry, in flowing waters and cultures divide, north side and south side, how could I ever choose, swaying back and forth, I am the bell that rings out on all sides.